0: This is the Author Archive Podcast. I'm David Freeman. One of the most popular classical composers in the UK, maybe in the world at the moment, is Rachmaninoff. And there's a new book about Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff, after he'd moved to America, Rachmaninoff in Exile, It's called Goodbye Russia, and it's by the Observer music critic Fiona Maddox. Now, Fiona... Isn't, isn't Rachmaninoff a little bit popular for you to write about? I mean, I remember reading your book about Harrison Whistle, and he's completely different.
1: Well, I, I think if he's at the classical end of the spectrum, that's absolutely great. He's at every end of every spectrum, if I can mix a few metaphors. Um, I, I think because there's, there's a, a, terrib- a diehard view, which always has to be challenged, that someone popular is somehow not as good as someone less popular. But Beethoven's pretty popular.
0: And, I mean, your last book that I read of yours was about Harrison Birtwistle, who who eludes the popular imagination. So what was it about Rachmaninoff and Rachmaninoff in later years that grabbed your heart?
1: Well, I, I think that I would like to say, first of all, I wasn't looking to do something that was popular. I was looking to do something that was interesting and seemed to be um, something that perhaps needed to be told, if if my instinct was right. Because I think it's true that if you are, as I am, someone who is reviewing music every week, of every kind, you, you can't be too partisan. It would be no good if I only went to Harrison Birkwistle concerts. I wouldn't have a job and nobody would read me and that would be the end of that, um, maybe, maybe for the better. Some people might think, but but I I had always had a feeling that there was um, some. I don't want to elevate it to a mystery. Every every human being is a mystery in in their own way, but there was something that wasn't really hadn't particularly been explored about Rachmaninoff. I I didn't know a lot about his life. I just knew that he had gone to America. Having left Russia in 1917 at the time of revolution, and had not really written very much music after that, and all the works that we know and love, all the the works that we know and love um, had been written in Russia, and uh, one or two were written in America. But his life seemed to go into a different direction, and it's slightly an overstatement to say that all the books about him just dealt with that in a couple of pages. But actually, some of them only do give it a couple of pages. He left Russia, he went to America, became a virtuoso pianist and a lot of money and didn't then write very much music. And I thought, well, that's that's nearly half his life. what well, a third of his life. There must be more to it than that. And I I, I just loved the music and I found it an intriguing story.
0: Just um, to put him in context, when Russia appears on our nightly news, it's always um, with the the war, the Ukrainian war. Would um, would Rachmaninoff have been familiar with Kiev and uh, the area that's disputed in his lifetime before he left?
1: Uh, I mean, he travelled all over. It, as, in his time in Russia, he had three careers, really. He was a, a composer not exclusively, but particularly composing on his family estate in the summer. Um, and there are many pictures. There's a very well-known picture of him sitting at a white table, dressed in what appeared to be white, a white suit with a manuscript in front of him. It's a very idyllic scene. But in addition to that, he was a conductor of quite a range of repertoire and also um a pianist, mainly of his own music. So he was combining these three careers very successfully and traveling all over what we then think of as Russia. But that included the places that are now in the news in Ukraine.
0: And did, I mean, you say that he lived on his family estate. Um, they seem to be quite well off. Is that why he had to leave because of the Russian Revolution?
1: Well, I think there was a big class aspect to the Russian Revolution, and I'm not the person to give a potted history of the Russian Revolution. So a l- look of relief on your face <laughs> as I say that. But he was born into what would be generally called a gentry or noble family of what were also generally called, and I'm squeezing a lot of history into a couple of words here, white Russians. And they knew that the Bolshevik Revolution um, was not going to look favourably on their existence up to this point. With the, the serfs were the, the serfs had ended, but there was still an absolute division between the landowners and the people who had to work the land, and they wanted those people wanted to redress the balance. And Rachmaninoff, as for many of his friends of his, I suppose we have to say class. But a lot of them were artists, musicians, they realized that they needed to get out. And some of them were really penalized and suffered, including members of Rachmaninoff's own family, who perhaps had more money than he did, and were, were really um physically attacked in, in some cases. His his cousin Zilotti, who had conveniently married a very rich woman, um was 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 definitely um Came under scrutiny and attack.
0: Was going to America the first port of call? Was this the first idea that the family had? This is where we must go.
1: No, I, I think we we should say he didn't escape in the sense of that the many many escaped. He escaped legally, if you can if you can escape legally. That's what he did. He wanted to leave, but he couldn't see how to do it because you needed visas and all the rest of it. But he was surprised just uh, in late 1917, when things were really very, very difficult, to be invited to give a recital tour in Scandinavia. And he took the opportunity and wisely took his wife and youngish daughters, early teens sort of age, um, and got a night train from the Finland station in Petersburg
0: Let's get an idea of um, what this man was like when he uh, uh, went to America. If he walked into this room now, what would we see? What What was the nature of the man?
1: We'd see a tall man for a start. Tall, quite gaunt, I, I think, would say pretty handsome man um, with enormous hands. Uh, there's a famous remark of Stravinsky, which everyone likes to repeat, that described him as a six and a half foot scowl. He, he he wasn't actually six and a half foot. He was probably six foot two, six foot three. But he he had a bearing that 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 sort of dignity. He was always smartly dressed. I suppose many were in those days. Always wore a suit and often a three piece suit with um with a tie. Often wore a big homburg hat, and that must have added something to his height. Uh, he was famous for not smiling. Perhaps a front that he clearly had a great sense of humour. And when you read some of the letters and the, 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 he didn't want to share that with everybody. And when he went on stage, I think he was, I get the impression from all the descriptions that he walked on very stiffly, sat down and started playing. No, no kind of smiling at his audience or a little bit of cajoling to get them on his side. He was there. He was there to play the piano and that was it.
0: Now, when he played, was it the highlight of his life? I mean, I have friends who are professional musicians, and they live for the moment that they're on stage. That is the best part of their life. Was Rachmaninoff like that?
1: It became like that? I think in America, he. Uh, we have to remember he had lost everything. He had given up all his library, his his estate. Um, his comforts, and he had to build it all up again. He had a family to support. And he really, I, th- I think it became not like a drug because he took it very, very seriously in terms of practising, 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 never thinking, oh, I know this one. <laughs> I've played this one before. He would always dismantle every piece or put it together again. There are many tales of him being stuck in some far-flung city without any concert, and he'd beg his agent to find him somewhere to play. Part of his, It became part of his persona. But it might also have been a way of keeping busy, not thinking of everything he had lost, extended family that he didn't see once he left Russia.
0: When he got to America, and after he'd lived there for a while, did he become a good native speaker of the language? Did the language come easily to him?
1: Apparently it didn't. He didn't warm to the idea of really immersing himself. He had many American friends, but he he remained quite a stilted speaker by all accounts. He, he, there are many descriptions of him having to ask his daughters to translate letters that he wrote to agents and equivalent into English and uh, i think that we see that as he got older he he was most at home in his in his native tongue russian
0: did he tend then to surround himself with fellow russians
1: it wasn't quite recreating the russian habit but it had been a russian habit it's a habit of many people to gather in the summer and have a, a tradition of life that they like to um perpetuate every year but I think that he, he felt he felt a warmth with those friends that he could express himself freely with.
0: I want to ask you about the, the music. When he went to America, it was just at the beginning, radio stations were happening, recording was happening, and um, popular music, jazz was happening. How did he take to all of that?
1: <laughs> it, it, I think with a mixed reaction. I think he was very, very charmed by it, and but he he didn't he he kept a, a great interest in what was going on, and he he was known to attend important concert, concerts concerts such as the one where Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue was first performed. He he was he was out and about at the kind of bars and restaurants where there'd be a band and there was a very particular piece of C-sharp minor prelude which became one of those almost hackneyed pieces that was played by everybody in every version on every instrument from a a zither to a full swing band and there was a particular occasion when they realised he was in the restaurant and I I make up what what happened but one can guess that they were feeling a bit sort of oh dear wonder what he thinks of this, but apparently he loved it. So I, th- I think that he was open to all these things, but he, he liked to say to people, oh, I don't write foxtrots, you know, foxtrots being the height of fashion at the time. But he did put dance into his, you know, his final work, the symphonic dances, is dance music, but it's not it's not cafe music, it's symphonic music, if uh, if we can make that distinction.
0: He, he was writing at the same time as Schoenberg. Now, it's a completely different language. What did he make of um, not only the glorious cacophony of Stravinsky, but the uh, the cerebralness of Schoenberg?
1: I think it's one of the things that has made his reputation perhaps misunderstood or, or pushed him into one side of the ring and Schoenberg and Stravinsky in the other. And Stravinsky, the experimentalists, Rachmaninoff, the person stuck in the 19th century, I, I would like to suggest that that's, uh, that's only a part of the truth. And he wasn't stuck in the 19th century, he lived very much in the 20th century. He was <laughs> a 20th century man, so it it's, doesn't even work to say he was stuck in the 19th century. But I think he had a tone of voice, artistically, which he developed, but he didn't particularly switch. It's never, never straightforward. And it's very easy to just condemn one as being old fashioned and the others as being forward looking.
0: Another area of this man's life that I knew nothing about was a, he traveled across the Atlantic numerous times and he traveled in style and he took his car. Now I loved that that he loved his car so much that he went on tour with him.
1: I, I must say that was one of my favourites. I just think he was a pioneer driver at a time when I mean, people were beginning to get cars, but he loved... I don't see any sign that he was greedy for money, but he enjoyed the money he had, and he spent it on lavish toys, boats, cars, and so on. So... um he was obliged to go back and forth across the Atlantic because he did a lot of touring in Europe. He played a lot in, in the UK, really arduous tours, several cities in as many days, You know, a dozen cities in 14 days or equivalent. Good luck to him. He, he, I think he, on one occasion, took a, a sort of dummy keyboard and lent a con- one of his own concertos, but I don't think he took a, his own grand piano. Maybe no. there was one available. <laughs>
0: Well, he made um, he he made this working arrangement with Steinway, didn't he, about pianos? I mean, it was hardly a sort of modern sponsorship deal. But wherever he went, they would arrange for him to have one.
1: Yes, I think it's it's interesting that he went with Steinway. I think quite a lot of the pianists he would have known would have gone with Steinway. So he wasn't he wasn't going on. They made sure that there was a good piano wherever he ended up, and that there was a good technician and. Make the piano work as he wanted, but um, I think it's it's led to a really beautiful idea that this is in piano, and actually he played lots of the, these Steinway pianos, and but but he pay him for his um, endorsement of their instruments. It was a an unpaid agreement.
0: Now, as a performer, and you as a music critic, how good a pianist? was he? We can hear him play. I love watching, listening to the piano rolls that he made. Uh, To my untutored ear, he seems pretty darn good. How does he seem to you?
1: I I think it's very interesting that, that I would not claim ultimate knowledge on the quality of a very, very great pianist compared with another very, very great pianist. But if you ask some of the people who are actually out there giving recitals currently, like someone like the the British player Stephen Huff, they revere Rachmaninoff, and there are enough recordings for us to be able to hear that he he had a way of playing that was superb and a virtuosity that was it wasn't effortless because he really 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 worked at it. I mean the descriptions of how his fingers hurt and he did he sat doing sort of finger exercises. There's a bit of video that it's quite easy to find on YouTube where he's sitting in a deck chair and everybody's having fun and he's he's sort of exercising his little finger that obviously has a, a weakness in it that he needs to be as hammer hammer strong as the rest of his fingers. So I, I think we have to accept that many, many of the greatest pianists alive today still consider him an exemplar.
0: And you mentioned this little video of him and his fans. Was he, um, I don't want to use the word hypochondriac, but was he sensitive about his health?
1: I think he was very sensitive and he always, I think uh, a melancholy side to him that slightly feared the worst about some ache or pain throughout his life from, from early on. And he he did have some what we might now call mental instability i think he was prone to dark days if 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 not worse and had a crisis after his first symphony was very rudely received but can you blame him he was very young at the time but uh i i i think he he did what a lot of people did at that time he went to spas and took the took the waters took the salt salts uh, it also sounds pretty time consuming, but he and his wife, uh, near the end of his life, he was, both of them were very desperate to get some sort of potion. I, I couldn't find out what it was, perhaps vitamin pills or something from um, which now we can get so easily, but must have been quite hard to come by with such ease then. But they, they were saying, how will we live without these pills? I don't think it was. An addictive drug. I just, I just think they like to, to be up with the latest medication because they were. There was a bit of hypochondria going on.
0: When a biographer writes about a particular subject, they uh, a, a relationship builds up. I mean, do you do you like him, this man that you write about? Oh,
1: I really liked him. Yes, I think he seems to have been a really remarkably honourable person with great kindness, great loyalty, I think he was probably shy. And I think he kept himself to himself, not in a way that was rude, though I'm sure at times it must have seemed rude, but just to keep his seriousness intact. He loved the friendship of of those he was comfortable with. He loved the hilarity of late nights playing, messing around on the piano and having fun but it was always within a circle of those very loyal to him. And I I think it's something that was very attractive about him. He wasn't flippant or, which would make him sound very dull, but I didn't think he was dull at all.
0: (laughs) And how do you think he'd react to his current popularity?
1: I think he was popular in his day. It's just that he he wasn't critically popular all the time. And he knew that he, when he wrote a new work, it was quite often this and not enough of that and same as he'd done before and so on. But I used to think he'd be quite tickled and he'd probably buy cars with the proceeds of um, the very, very many recordings and concerts of his music.
0: Um, I was fascinated and it's Rachmaninoff in exile, Goodbye, Russia by Fiona Maddox. Delight to meet you. Thank you very much indeed, Fiona.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you.